This morning, we are going to continue our New Year's series in James, Practically Living Our Faith. The last time we were together, we spent a lot of time setting the stage for this series. Setting the stage for this letter is very important because knowing who wrote the book, who the audience was, and why the letter was written helps us grasp why this book is so very, very applicable and important to our lives today. The audience were Jewish Christians who had been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire because of persecution in Jerusalem. They had been kicked out. And we see the beginning of that in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. That's Saul who would eventually become the Apostle Paul. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the Apostles. These Jewish Christians were driven out of Jerusalem with little more than the clothes on their backs into a very, very pagan society. They would have been destitute, alone, and tempted on all sides to compromise their Christian witness. There would have been no other churches for them to flee to because the gospel hadn't yet even started to begin moving into the Gentile cities. The Gentile church hadn't been established yet. There were Gentile believers, but the church in general was mainly housed in Jerusalem. The writer of this letter is only, identif- only identifies himself as James. And this leads us to surmise that the dispersed Jews to whom the letter was written, they, they must have known him because he doesn't say James this or James that. He just says James. And the question we must ask is, which James? Which James wrote this? There are five men in the New Testament with the name James. Which one would have been so well known by Jewish Christians that he didn't need to identify himself any further than by his first name? So we came to the conclusion that only James, the only James mentioned in the New Testament, who would have been that well known would have been the James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, was not a believer when Jesus was alive on this earth. But after a special visit by his brother after his resurrection, he finally believed. After his salvation, he eventually became a leader in the Jerusalem church, but not just any leader. He became what we would describe as the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church, which at that time was the largest church in the entire world. And this is why he didn't have to identify himself with more than his first name to the dispersed Jewish Christians, because they already all knew him. They knew him as what? Pastor James. And he's just writing to them and saying, hey, this is James. I'm writing some things to you that I want you to know. So knowing the relationship between the author and the audience of this letter sets the tone for what James wrote. As a pastor, he is concerned about their well-being. He knows they are alone, spread out throughout the Roman Empire. He knows they are poor and destitute. He knows they are vulnerable to pagan influences, and he knows that he will probably never see them again. As a pastor who loves his people very much, I can't even imagine the sense of grief and hopelessness that James had at that point in time for his people. Most of his church was dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. The people he had loved and taught about Christ and led to Christ he would probably never see again. And he knew they were struggling. He knew they were struggling. 
We need to let this situation resonate in our hearts as we walk through this letter. There was no social media, no email, no texting, no cell phones. There's only the ability to write a letter that would be short enough to carry long distances throughout the Roman Empire. So James writes his beloved dispersed flock. It is a pastoral letter from a pastor who is separated from the people he loves. And we know from this letter that he felt his most important instruction that he could give them was how to practically live out their faith in a pagan culture. That was foremost on his mind. My people need to know how to relate to the world around them. My people need to know how to deal with the idols and the sexual immorality that they're going to uh, deal with. My people are going to need to know how to speak to one another and how to live with one another. That's all in the book of James. So his letter focuses on not how to become a Christian. They already knew that. They were his people. They knew how to become a Christian. So his focus was not on how to become a Christian, but how to behave as one. How to behave as one. This is why there is very little mention of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross here. Jesus Christ's name only shows up in the first few, chapter, uh, first few verses of chapter 1. And then you don't hear about Jesus Christ for the rest of the book, for all five chapters. James is writing to those he had already taught all of the gospel to. He is writing to those who have placed their faith in his brother Jesus for their salvation. And what his dispersed flock needs is instruction on daily living in a pagan culture. They needed to know how to handle trials, as I said, and temptations. They needed to know how to talk. They needed to know how to treat each other, how works partners with faith, and how they should view money and handle money. One question remains uh, to be asked before we really actually get into our passage this morning. Does this letter apply to us? It was written to the dispersed Jews. They were Jews. It doesn't say to the dispersed Jews and the Gentiles. By the way, who are we? Gentiles. Every person in here is a Gentile. He says it's to the dispersed, to the dispersed Jews. So does this letter apply to us? And I want to give you a very hearty yes. James wrote it to the 12 tribes who were, tribes who were dispersed. The reason he addressed it that way is because of what I've already said. The Gentile church didn't exist at that point in time. The Christian church was mainly made up of Jewish Christians when James penned his letter. But we know this letter applies to us because it was written to those who had done what? Placed their faith in Jesus Christ. This letter throughout the ages is to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And it would have become very, very helpful for which churches later on? The Gentile churches. It would have become very helpful because it has very, very practical, this is how you are to behave. This is what your Christian life looks like. James is a very challenging letter. Many of us are going to walk away from here with bloody noses and black eyes. When you read this letter, it's going to be right here in your face. In only five chapters, there are 60 imperatives. There are 60 commands that lay out how every Christ follower should behave in light of the doctrine they say they believe. It sets each of us who claim to have placed our faith in Jesus Christ before a mirror. You're going to get a chance to look, maybe not necessarily into this mirror, but into the mirror of your faith. 
James makes us look in that mirror to ask, has my faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed itself to my friends, to my fellow students, to my fellow neighbors, to my coworkers, my family, my teammates, and maybe even the cashier at Walmart? Has my faith revealed itself to them by how I behave? By how I act? By the choices I make? By how I talk? Has my faith been revealed to them by how I behave? The stage is now set, and so I'd like to pray right now and ask God to prepare our hearts to look in the mirror of His Word as He shows us how we are to behave in the pagan culture that we all live in now. Let's pray. Father God, we bow before You. We ask that You would open our hearts and our minds. I pray that we would take a hard look in the mirror. I pray, Lord God, that we wouldn't become discouraged, but we would become very, very challenged. That we would be able to look at our lives and to say and evaluate and say, Lord, help me to grow. Help me to mature. And Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So please take your Bibles, the Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, it's a red book that's in front of you. I would really highly recommend that you don't just look at the screen when we go through the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, keep one of the red ones, mark in it, draw in it. And so what we're going to do now is going to read James chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. You'll find it on page 1288 of the Pew Bible. James chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. I want you to notice right up front that James doesn't waste any time here. He has a a short amount of space to write in. He can't write volumes of stuff. He's just going to get right to the point. He knows his dispersed flock is really struggling. He knows they are facing tremendous trials and temptations. And what he is writing here is something like this. The first thing I want you to think about are the trials you're facing. He, I mean, he, he just walks right up and looks them in the eye through a letter and says, you need to think about what your life looks like right now while you're facing all these trials. I want you to deal with the trials that you have in your life. He says, I want you to consider them. The ESV version here says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. But I believe the other versions that translate that count as consider better directs our minds to what James had his mind. Count is a good Greek translation. I think consider grabs the idea better. He wants them to think about. He wants them to consider. He wants them to look at it. So when somebody would say, I want you to consider something you're doing in your life, they want you to sit back, back up, and what? Examine it. And that's what he's asking them to do. How does he want them to look at their trials? You ready for this? It's probably not in a way that they want to look at their trials. He says, I want you to look at your trials. I want you to consider your trials as a source of joy in your life. James is being pastoral here. 
he is lovingly referring to them as brothers and sisters. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, and that also includes sisters. He wants them to step back and think about their trials. And we must all realize that before our behavior can begin to change, our minds must be changed. Behavior will never change until your mind is changed. To have right behavior, we must first have right thinking. And that's where James starts. What a life lesson this is from the pen of James. If you and I want to change how we react to day in and day out, life circumstances, we must first be able to think correctly about the life we are experiencing. James wants his flock to step back and think through how they are responding to their trials. God has place in their lives. James is going to ask you to step back right now this morning and evaluate every trial that you may be going through, every trial that you might come up against tomorrow. He goes, I want you to evaluate If you're going through trials right now, you need to sit up and take notice because James is speaking to you. He has already placed you in front of the mirror and said, take a look at your life and take a look at your trials. Do you consider that trial a blessing and a source of joy? If you are saying, no, we got a problem. Because what is the right thinking here? Consider it what? Or count it what? All joy, command, not an option. And we have to understand that. If you're not facing trials right now, it's not time for you to relax because you will find out in just a few minutes there are trials awaiting for you just around the corner in your life. Your life may be fine right now, but when you wake up tomorrow morning, there may be a trial waiting for you as soon as you step out of bed. You don't know. So let me read verse 2 again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James is not suggesting this is how his flock should respond to trials. This is the first, as I said, of his 60 imperatives. This is what he is saying. You and I must begin to grow in in our lives. We must look at our trials as being blessings from God. So how can we come to a place where we actually take verse 2 and make it applicable to our lives. I mean, it's really easy to say that, and I see a whole bunch of panicked looks out there. Like, I really have to do this? This is what God wants me to do? There's no way around it? No way around it. This is how you behave as a Christ follower. This is how you walk as a Christ follower. No matter what you find, no matter what trial comes into your life, you count it joy. It's part of our normal behavior. This cuts against the grain of how all of us think. How can we come to a place where we live this out practically? I think the first three words of verse 3 gives us the answer. For you know. Verse 3, for you know. In other words, the things we know that are true, the things of which we are sure of, the things that drive us to change our behavior, these things that we know to be true are the things that make us possible to live out verse 2. The things that we know. Remember we said that what changes our behavior? Our mind. And so when we encounter trials, we encounter trials from the point of view of what we know to be true. Not on what we feel is true, not what we feel is right, 
Not what we were emoting at that point in time. We respond to trials in light of what we know. This is why it's so important for God's people to know God's Word. This is why we need to be under the preaching and teaching of God's Word. This is why we need to read and study God's Word throughout the week. Knowing what God has revealed about life in His Word is what helps us grow as people. It's what helps us count all the trials we go through as joy. You will never be able to see the temptations in your life as a source of joy without knowing God's Word. Period. This is why when you come to me and say, my life is hard right now. Can you help me through something? Many of you have done that. Many of you don't want to do it again. Because what do I usually do? I will more often than not sit down with you or walk alongside of you and say what? How does God want you to respond? And usually that's the last thing you want to hear. You just want me to come alongside and pat you on the back. It'll be okay. And I usually say that, but after the it'll be okay, it's what? Are you responding to this in the way God wants you to? And I can't tell you how many times people have gotten really, really ticked off at me for doing that. You don't care. You don't understand. You're right. I do care, but I don't understand because I'm not living your life with you. But I do understand what? That as believers, we respond to trials a whole lot differently than the world. And I'm going to take you, every time you come to me with that, I'm going to take you down, I'm going to set you in front of the Bible with me, and we're going to see how does God want you to respond right now. Because that's what you need, and that's what I need to grow. Our attitudes about life are shaped by what we know from God's Word. And James is clear that the bridge that makes it possible for us to apply the practical teaching of counting all joy when you meet trials of various kinds Knowing the truth of God's Word is what makes that possible. You cannot live out verse 2 unless you know God's Word. In verses 2 through 4, we find seven truths, seven truths about trials. These truths are what we are going to learn and now know about trials They will help us rise above the natural tendency to respond to trials with fear and panic, with resentment, or a feeling that life is unfair. These seven truths are going to help you know how to relate or how to live out verse 2 by counting it all joy when you encounter various trials. The first of these seven truths His trials are inevitable. James doesn't write if you meet, but when you meet trials. Trials should be an expected, ordinary part of our lives, especially as Christians. Let that sink in. Trials are a normal part of your life. They are not accidents. They are not something that is only going to happen here and there. They are normal, day in, day out, week in, week out parts of your life. Our culture is intent on selling us the exact opposite of that, cult, of that attitude. They want us to see trials as being intruders in our lives. Our culture preaches at us to hide from it, to escape from them, to remove as many trials as possible from our lives as quickly as possible. 
Parents go to great lengths to keep their children from experiencing trials and temptations instead of teaching them how to deal with them. And then when the kids get out on their own, they go nuts because they don't know how to handle the trials. They don't know how to look at something in life that is a normal part of their life and respond to it because they have been protected for their entire lives. We look to hobbies and vacations and material things to help us escape the trials of life. But we soon find out that there is no way to really escape trials. The only way to escape trials in this life is to escape the world in which we live. And you want to know what's sad about that? Look at the suicide rate. Because there are thousands and thousands of people who understand that truth. The only way I'm going to escape a trial in this life, the only way I'm going to make my life better is to leave this world. And they kill themselves. The word trial here means to be put to the test so that we might be proved true. It means to be put to the test so that we might be proved true. Trials are part of life to prove who we really are. Trials are like a bag of tea. You don't know what kind of tea is in the bag until you put it in hot water, until you stress it, until you put it under heat. Trials cause what we really are inside to become visible on the outside. How many of you have ever been around somebody who you think is really, really cool, nice, good person, and they get under a hard time in life, they get under some trials, and they completely change. They become bitter, they become angry, and they don't want to be around people. You know what? The trials are proving who they really are on the inside. The second truth we see is that trials are various in nature. It says they're counted all joys, When you meet trials of various kinds. The word various here in the Greek means multicolored. If we were to take an inventory of all the trials people are going through right here this morning, that truth would be validated. There's not a single life in here that has all the same trials going on at the same time. There are adolescent teens who are in the trial of keeping themselves pure when everything in culture says, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. That's a trial, folks. And sometimes we dismiss those teens and think they're just being stupid. That's a trial for them. And our culture is fighting against what the Bible says. And instead of being angry at them, we need to walk alongside and say, I know you don't want to hear this. I know that you're you're struggling right now, but I'm praying for you because I know this is a trial in your life. There are older folks who struggle with the trials of pains and weaknesses that age brings. They struggle with inability to do what they used to do. And sometimes it is really, really hard. I don't know that personally yet. Some here deal with the trial of wayward children that brings much pain and anxiousness to their life. There are others who deal with the trials of lost jobs, sick spouses, car troubles, bad neighbors, broken relationships. Trials are various in nature. And we are all going to see them. But there's something that we need to know. 1 Peter 4.10, Peter writes, As each has received a gift, use it to serve another as good stewards of God's what? Varied grace. Guess what word that is? The same one that is used here in James. And what we can take from this is that God's grace demonstrates itself in various ways in such a way that no matter what trial you find yourself in, God's grace is capable of meeting that. God's grace is 
is there to be able to meet every trial you have. And I, I put it this way, for every shade of trial, there is a shade of grace. For every shade of trial, there is a shade of grace. Truth number three, trials tend to be unexpected. I like how the King James translates this. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse or varied temptations. I like the idea of fall. It's in that Greek word. It just doesn't show up in the ESV. It's the idea of falling into something. It's the idea of tripping. It's the idea of, of something unexpected happens. It's the same word that is used in the story of the Good Samaritan when they say that he fell among thieves. I mean, the Good Samaritan, he didn't pack his bags and go, hey, I'm looking forward to getting beat up today. He didn't expect it. He didn't plan for it. He, he just walked and was going, uh, traveling where he was going. And then the thieves fell upon him unexpectedly. That's what this idea here is. Isn't this one of the great challenges of trials? They seem to always show up when you least expect it. Life is going along fairly fine, and then the water line freezes. We've experienced that here recently, haven't we? The car tire blows out on the freeway. A daughter comes home with an announcement that she is pregnant and going to have an abortion. A spouse announces they're leaving. A job is lost. Cancer rears its ugly head. They always come unexpectedly. We don't know when the trials are going to show up. And we need to understand in the context of this passage, notice that the trials he is referring to are the trials we meet into life, the unexpected trials. He is not referring to the trials that we create in our lives because of unwise choices or sins we commit. James here, his focus is on the trials that show up when we don't expect them. The trials that we're all going to have because we live on this sinful planet earth. He is not talking about those that we choose to walk into because we do what? Sin or make unwise decisions. So the fourth truth is trials are there to test us. Trials are there to test us. Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Trials test our faith. Based on the word test here, we find that our faith is tested in two ways. First, it tests the genuineness of our faith. It tests the genuineness of our faith. Like the genuineness and purity of gold is tested in great heat, so the purity and genuineness of our faith is tested in the heat of trials. If you are not growing in your ability to see trials as a blessing from God, seeing trials as bringing great joy to your life. Your faith hasn't been tested as genuine. Your faith hasn't been tested as genuine. That doesn't mean that there are some here who have walked in life longer and who do better at that, and there are going to be some who have just come to Christ and maybe they're infants in Christ and there's going to be a, a range. But where are we all going? All of us are going to see trials and walk into trials that are going to test us and, and help us prove whether our faith is really genuine or not. How we respond to the trials validates that our faith is genuine. How we respond to trials validates that our faith 
is genuine. Secondly, the tests of trials are there to make us grow stronger. They're there to make us grow stronger. Remember, it's a sanctifying thing. We're growing more and more. Uh, I have weightlifted throughout my life, off and on. Not recently, as many of you can probably tell. But when you go into into the gym and you watch, uh, let's say, a young guy, and I've watched it in gyms coaching sports. Maybe a seventh grader is there, an eighth grader is there, and he's pumping away and he's doing all this stuff and he looks like a stick. But you come back when he's a junior, a senior, and he's walking around like this. But the idea that we have to understand here is that our trials are what put muscle on our faith. Our trials bring strength to our faith. They fill us out. They steady us for the future. Our trials our trials make us stronger. If you make a habit of running from trials that are going to come into your life, if you try to hide from them in drugs or alcohol, impure relationships, by just ignoring them or by being so busy you don't have time to acknowledge them, and that list can go on, if you make the habit of running from your trials, you will never grow in your faith, ever. You will remain an infant. You will remain an infant. You will never really know if your faith is genuine or not. If you're not growing in your strength in trials, you cannot know that your faith is genuine. You can't. You will never mature in your faith. If you run, you will be an anemic Christian, a weak Christian. And this life will push you one way or the life will push you another way. And you will never seem to be able to stand firm for Jesus Christ. But if you face your trials, you will be sure of the genuineness of your faith. It will be forged in the fires of trials stronger, ready for the future trials that will come. You will be stronger and ready to walk in our community as a mature, strong Christ follower. The fifth truth is trials develop steadfastness. Look at the end of verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Trials grow your ability to hold on. There were two types of cross-country runners. Most of you know that I coached cross-country for decades, many years. There were two types of runners that I coached. Those who would face the trials that I put before them, and those who would either try to escape the trials or would only do the bare minimum to get through the trial. I had both of them. Those who faced the gut-wrenching track workout that caused them to dry heave and feel bad for hours afterward became the ones who could, per- who could persevere the trials of a race. They would persevere the big hills, the hot sun, the tired legs, and having to compete against runners that they thought were faster. Those who took the challenge and looked it, and, and looked it in the face and said, I am going to take this trial that Coach Hardenbrook is putting before us. I hate him right now, but I'm going to do it. They are the ones that stood at the finish line, strong and able to finish the race. Those who found ways to get around the trials often found themselves walking off the race course, unable to persevere or even making it to the finish line. They caved. 
They weren't able to have the endurance of the long-distance race. And that's what the Christian life is, folks. It's a long-distance race. It is not a sprint. And just like on a cross-country race course, there are going to be trials around every corner, which we've already talked about. There are going to be hills. There are going to be downhills. By the way, downhills are really difficult to run. You would think, well, hey, there's a lot of... Re- it may have beat you up. You're going to have the weather go against you. But if you find a way to look at the trials as a way of strengthening you, you will be able to finish no matter what you encounter. I don't want you to miss this. We've already alluded to it. If we pull out when the heat is turned up, if we pull out when the heat is turned up, when the trials become seemingly unbearable, then we will lose all the good that God intends for us. I want you to hear that again. If we pull out when the heat is turned up, when the trials become seemingly unbearable, then we will lose all the good that God intends for us. If you try to hide from the trials and remove them from your life, you are missing out on good that God has for you. If I leave my job because of trials, if I leave my marriage because of the trials are hard, then you and I will never experience all the good God has planned when we come out of the trial. And I'm going to tell you something. Life only gets worse. Your life will only get harder. Because God's not going to stop the testing. He's going to get your attention one way or the other. You might as well learn the first time through. How many of you here have had trials just continually hit you? Not because of anything you've done, not because you've sinned, but they just keep on, it just seems to always be in the way. And then one day you wake up, you go, well, this is what God's trying to tell me, and now you don't struggle with the trial anymore. God's going to get your attention. Sixthly, trials need to be responded to properly. It is our response to trials that is the key to everything that we've been talking about. It is our response to trials that is the key. The benefit trials will have in our lives depends on how we look at them. And we must put into practice what we know now. We have to practice it. We must put it into practice. What we know must impact how we respond. What we know must override our emotions and fears or steadfastness will never have its full effect on us. There is nothing biblical about responding to trials first and foremost by emoting or by getting angry or by walking down the hallway and wanting to hide from life. It is us standing there and saying, I am going to face you, I'm going to look at you, and I'm going, Lord God, what do you have for me in this trial? Because I know I know that there's something good in it for me. And that's why the earlier phrase, because you know, is so important. If you don't know that God has planned good benefits in the trials of your life, you will never respond to them properly. The preacher Andrew Murray had a formula for dealing with the major trials he experienced in life. And this is so helpful. You can put them on the back of your notes. These Four steps that he used to deal with trials are so 
helpful. First, understanding I am here by God's appointment. Is there any trial that will come into your life that God has not appointed? So everything that enters your life is because God put it there. You know that. We know that. And we need to respond to trials that way. I am always in His care. True? Is there any time that God is not caring for us? No. When we see trials come into our lives, Lord God, I know you care for me. I know I am in your care. I know that you are watching over me. That is a huge help in dealing with trials. If you look at the trials, you say, well, God, where did God at? Why did he let me do this? We're not living out of what we know. We're acting as if God's not there. I am under his training. That's what we've been talking about today. When a trial enters your life, you're in training. Take the sweatsuit off. Put the shoes on, put the gloves on, and it's time to train. It isn't time to run. It's not time to complain. It's not time to try to find out how to get around the workout. It is. It's time for training. That's how we face our trials as Christ followers. Last one, it will only endure for His time. Who controls how long it's going to go? God, do you have any control over that? Sometimes trials will last for how long? Maybe a day, maybe 10 minutes. Other times the trial could last for years, for years. But it will only endure for his time. Andrew Murray responded to trials by putting into practice what he knew. He, put, he responded to trials by putting into practice what he knew. The seventh truth, trials are always fruitful. Trials are always fruitful. There is never a trial you're going to encounter that is not fruitful. Look at verse 4. And let steadfast have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In that verse, we see three fruits that trials bear. First, it's maturity. It says that you may become perfect. You could put the word mature in there, that you may become mature. That's the, the Greek idea. It doesn't mean that you... Is anybody here going to become perfect? No. So you automatically set that aside, understanding that's not going to be part of my life. Perfection is not part of my life, even for your, the perfectionists that are sitting out there. You will never match that you will never get to that point so as maturity is the fruit of trials you have trials and god puts them in our lives and brings them to your life so that you may become spiritual adults and you will never become a spiritual adult unless you respond well to trials we will never mature if we quit we will never mature if we quit. We will never mature if we just try to hide in the closet. And then we see that 
trials bear the fruit of completeness. It says again in verse 4, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. The fruit of completeness is our becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. We are already complete in Christ. Amen? There is nothing that we lack in Jesus Christ. But we often live our lives like we are not complete. We often live our lives as if He's abandoned us or He's letting something in our lives that isn't quite fair or isn't quite right. But God says that we are complete in Jesus Christ. And what we're doing in trials is learning and growing into that completeness. Becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Becoming more and more like our Savior. None of us have experienced a trial like He did when He went to the cross. Out of anybody that's ever walked the face of this earth, Jesus Christ could have said, that is unfair. I didn't do anything to deserve it. But Jesus Christ went to the cross like a lamb and didn't utter a word. That's our example of how to handle trials. And he's hanging on the cross. An innocent man And he looks down and he says what? Forgive them for they know not what they do. To the people who hung him on the cross, who beat him to a pulp, he said, forgive them. Are you there yet? Are you there yet? You see, trials bear that fruit of completeness as we become more and more like Christ to where we respond to our trials like He did. And when the trials are responded to properly, they will bear the fruit of our not lacking anything. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The fruit of contentment The fruit of saying, there is nothing more I need in my life except Jesus Christ. You see, that's where God is moving us through our trials. When we come to a place where we understand these seven principles, then verse 2, which I'm going to read, makes sense. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet or when you encounter trials of various kinds. We count it joy because we know these seven things. They're part of God's Word. I am able to consider trials. You are able to consider trials as a source of joy because our perspective of them has changed when we look at it from James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And we need to understand this. They are not a joy. Trials are not a joy because of their own sake, in and of their own sake. In other words, I don't enjoy the trials itself, itself or themselves. It is not that I want to be hit on the, hammer, on the head with a hammer again. That's wrong thinking. There are a lot of people who are in a hospital because they enjoy the pain of trials. You see, we don't enjoy the trials, but we understand the trials produce a fruit that we do enjoy. It doesn't mean we walk through trials and like, hey, bring me another one. Hey, let's, oh man, hit me harder. The trials are not pleasant. The trials, as in cross country, are gut-wrenching. They hurt. They cause us to grieve. 
They're unpleasant many, much of the time. But we look, as my cross-country owners did, who looked them in the face when I put them on the track, and they looked at that trial and they said, I'm after it because I understand the fruit that it produces. And when they came around on that last lap and they hit that finish line and I hit that clock and I said, good job, and they don't hear me because they're on their knees retching. But they counted joy because they understand when I do this, then one day maybe I'll stand on the podium. A winner. Being mature as a cross-country runner. It's the same way for our Christ-following lives. These trials that will come into our lives help us become more like Christ. Help us to grow as Christ followers. Help us to become stronger. Help us to look at the world from the right perspective. Trials help us perceive the outworking of God's plan in our life and the proof that we have been born again into a genuine faith. Let me say that again. Trials help us perceive the outworking of God's plan in our lives and the proof that we have been born again into a genuine faith that God will continue to refine through trials. That's why we count trials as joy. Look at verse 2 again. I'm going to read all three verses again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. These words were written to a dispersed church from their caring pastor are a hard look at our own lives in the mirror. How genuine is your faith? It's just an honest question. How do you handle trials? Look at yourself in the mirror and say, this is how I handle trials. This is, this is what I, I understand. Do you handle trials by, and looking at them as being a source of joy in your life? Or do you just try to run from them and hope that they disappear someday? Ask yourself these questions. How do I view the trials in my life? How do I respond to them? Do I really see them as a true source of joy given by God to grow me? Or do I see them at best as an inconvenience to be avoided? Or at worst, at worst a curse from God Himself because He let them into my life? How do you respond? Father God, these are hard questions that we ask. These are revealing questions ones that we really don't want to step up to the mirror and ask. But I pray that each of us would do that. That we would go back and reread the first four verses of James, chapter 1. That maybe we would sit down with our families and pray through our trials. And praise God for the trials, even though they hurt. Oh, Lord God, help us to walk alongside of each other as we encounter trials of various kinds. Help us to be brothers and sisters in Christ who don't try to remove the trial, but help us walk through them. In Christ's name, amen.